Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell, and I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Today's guest for our podcast is Dr. Lori Dorfman, director of the Berkeley Media Studies Group in Berkeley, California, which is a project of the Public Health Institute. Lori has long been a leader on looking at a variety of issues about how health matters are covered in the press, and also more recently about issues related to marketing, particularly food marketing. Uh, Lori has been one of the first to talk about the potential risks of digital marketing and has done a good deal of work on that topic, I've written excellent reports that are available on the Berkeley Media Studies Group website. Uh, Lori, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Kelly. So first, what do you mean by digital marketing? What is it? Well, by digital marketing, I mean marketing that comes over various platforms that are include web, internet, mobile phones, iPods, cool new iPhones, all kinds of technology that allows information to pass digitally. Okay. When people, when you talk to people about advertising, they mainly think about television or maybe billboards or advertisements in magazines. Um, how important is digital marketing when you look at it as part of the overall marketing imprint, if you will? Well, I think it's becoming more and more important. And I think that even um, advertising is too narrow a term. In general, with marketing, people talk about the four P's of marketing, product, place, price, and promotion. And the the promotion part is what we tend to think of as advertising because it's the most visible part. But in fact, if you think about uh, the four Ps, a great example is Coke Zero, which was a whole product that was created to get a market that of men who wanted a diet drink but were reluctant to use the word diet when they were ordering their beverage. And so this whole product allowed them to order something, Coke Zero, where they didn't have to say the word. With digital marketing as well, all these things are, with marketing in general, all these things are integrated, even though the consumer is mostly just aware of the advertising. And with digital marketing, things are ever more integrated because people are using different kinds of platforms and different kinds of technology. Now the marketers are trying to maintain a ubiquitous presence anywhere a person turns, and particularly children and young people. So whether it's their Facebook profile or their text messaging on their phone or their instant messaging on a website or they're driving through a billboard or they're playing a game and seeing a billboard in a game, all of these places are being touched by marketers. You had some data that you presented on uh, expenditures for marketing being, if I remember the numbers right, being pretty level on marketing overall, food marketing overall, as I recall, but going up on the digital arena. The place that the numbers are starting to drop is in television advertising, although overall spending is highest there because television is so expensive to purchase. But the place where, but the food companies are starting to drop Uh, lower their expenditures there, even though in real dollars there's still more, and raise their expenditures for digital marketing. And the interesting thing there in terms of the measurement is that digital marketing is so much cheaper, they can get a lot for less money. 
Okay, so they can get, they can buy get more of it for the same amount of money, which makes right. it appealing. Right. But you've also made a strong case of why it might even be more powerful form right. of marketing. Could you talk about that and some of the tailoring that goes on? Sure. There's um, it, it's fascinating, and and really, I'm just learning about it. And I, if I had probably a fraction of the knowledge that the companies and the marketers had, I know a lot more. But what I have been learning has been fascinating me because there's two parts of this. One part is the ability to target ads in a more precise way than has ever happened before. And the tools that the marketers are using help them collect the data about consumers so they can do that more effectively. At the same time, the very same tools keep the consumer engaged with the brand for a longer period of time. So when you mention targeting, you mean that I would get a different set of advertising marketing messages than you might say if we were on the same website even depending right. on what information they'd collected about us. That's right. And the, they, you would get a different ad because you may have clicked something different on the web page. Maybe you viewed the video longer than I viewed the video. Maybe you put something different in your online shopping cart than I did. Maybe you chatted more than I did. Or maybe we spent um, different amounts of time doing different things on the website. All those ti- things that we're doing are being scored and collected and crunched and then spit back out to us in the form of ads that are, from the company's perspective, going to be more appealing to us. So you you had mentioned that um, there used to be a time when there was mass marketing where um, a television advertisement would have to go out to a mass market and they just hoped that within that mass of people that were exposed to the message, they picked up enough of the interested parties that the marketing worked. Um, and then they could do a little bit of specific marketing, maybe by part of the country or something like that. But you're talking about marketing to a given individual. There's a great degree of specificity there, isn't there? A lot of specificity. And the mass marketing is still going on, of course, but it's much cruder. Now, when you have gigantic numbers of huge populations and you move them just a little bit for a company that could be very important. So if Pepsi wins just a few percentage points over Coca-Cola, it's a massive uh, win for them because it's thousands and thousands of people. Now they can, they still want to get those thousands and thousands of people, but because they can be so much more precise, they can do it presumably more effectively. It it sounds from what you're saying that the the industry spends a great deal of money and attention on harvesting information from people. And you mentioned some ways they do it, how long you stay on a video, what parts of a website you go to, et cetera. Uh, But it sounds like they collect specific information from people in places like Facebook. Would you describe how that works? Well, Facebook and MySpace and other kinds of social networking sites are encourage people to put up profiles. So in your profile, you have all kinds of descriptions. It's really up to you what you want to include, but there's usually some kind of template that you fill in. Maybe your favorite movies or your political affiliation or your sexual orientation, uh, along with all the demographic uh, demographic data that you would normally put up there. And 
not only that, but there are exchanges with you and your friends where you're sharing photographs or stories or other text that might have information about you. And all of that can be collected and date and, and used by companies to target their marketing. So uh, one of the companies, Coca-Cola, has a site where you can build a profile and it's called mycokerewards.com. And they've boasted that they use 400 different pieces of data to build their uh, on which they base their target marketing. 400 is remarkable. You'd think, I mean, you could probably off the top of your head name five or six. <laughs> that would be relevant. <laughs> I couldn't I name 400. I can't imagine how you could get to 400, but right. it's interesting that they can do that. But if you're listing all the music you like and the different bands and the places you've been and talking about your vacation and you have uh, things about your education and your employment, it's not just the basic categories you get on a survey, it's much richer and much more detailed. And that's what makes the target marketing much more precise. And from what you've said, it's not apparent to consumers that this information is being collected on them. Is that correct? Well, it's... um that, that's a good question, whether it's it's apparent or not. I think some of the people who are concerned about privacy, for example, are very worried that it's not at all apparent. And most of us who've gone on a website who want access to information are told that we have to agree to the terms of the website. And usually you just have to click a box and you go forward. And I don't think too many people stop and read the box. Or even if they do read that legalese that's inside the box, know what it means or, or know what kind of rights they may be compromising. So most of the time, if you want the information, you go get it. And most of the time, it's okay. But what's behind the curtain here is what the companies are doing with the information that they're collecting about you. And so companies like f- the, the, the Facebooks of the world and MySpace and the Googles and things like that are harvesting this information as they go along and then selling it to the people that can then market you products. That's happening. And then the other thing that's happening that's interesting and probably insidious, depending on your point of view, is that the nature of those sites mean that you are establishing relationships with other people. And in those relationships, in any kind of relationship, there's give and take. And so you're giving things to people. And the things that you're giving them on their Facebook page, for example, are fun. They're little gifts, they're decorations. I mean, not real gifts, but like a... A picture of a gift. A picture of flowers that It's a real gift the way a refrigerator magnet is a, is a real gift, except it's not visually on your refrigerator, it's visually on your profile. So it's a little picture of something. And in order to send that to a friend, I have to check a box that allow, that says it's okay if the company looks at my profile. And if I want to send that little talking dog to a friend, then I check the box because it's so much fun to send them a little talking dog. It's amazing how many opportunities there are for the companies to collect information in these processes. Um, you use the word engagement a lot, mm-hmm. and um, I, by that you're referring to how long people stay attached to a website or engage with it and things like that. Is there any information on available on how long children especially spend in, involved in these games or the websites? Um, the information's hard to find because it's proprietary, generally speaking. My guess is the companies know a great deal about how long and where the children spend time and place their eyeballs on and their clicks on the different web pages. The site I mentioned previously, mycokerewards.com, boasted that the average time was nine minutes that people were spending on the site. So compared to something like a 30-second television commercial, that's a 
quite immersive and engaged time with a brand, much more than what would happen on a TV commercial. And yet we know from research that TV commercials have effects on what products people choose to purchase and what they choose to eat. So I'm just guessing that uh, nine minutes is going to be more intense than 30 seconds. Well, especially if, the, if what they're seeing is targeted specifically to them. That's right. So you could see how the, the digital marketing would be so powerful a means of uh, selling products where um, the, the, mar- the messages can be targeted. Uh, it doesn't cost the company very much to do this because once they've created the website, it's just there. They don't have to pay like they do on television to keep putting it up and things. Um, and then you've also talked in the case of children about how this occurs out of sight of the parents. What do you mean by that? Well, I think a lot of what happens on the platforms that kids are using are happening between them and their cell phone or them and their instant messaging or them and their internet page. And parents, generally speaking, aren't over the shoulder. I don't think parents should be over the shoulder. But what it means is that this is an unseen territory that, in fact, parents don't really know what companies are sending to their kids or what their kids have agreed to. And in the cases of foods that might be damaging their health, I think it's worth the adults peeking over the shoulder. So if children are getting uh, access to a lot of these websites, and they're seeing a lot of uh, images of food and branding is going on. What are they seeing? What types of foods are they being exposed to for the most part? Well, the study that we did of the websites that were most popular with kids found that most of the foods that were present on the home pages or one click away from those home pages were primarily foods that kids should avoid, candies, crackers, snacks, cookies, things that shouldn't be the most of what they see. It should be just a little bit of what they see because we know what they see influences what they eat. So let me end with this question. This might be a little bit hard one to answer because I know work in this area is pretty new. But just in the few minutes we've spent together, you've painted a pretty alarming picture of how much of this there is, how little parents know about it, how much information is being obtained from people, and how the marketing can be so effectively targeted. Um, What do you think could be done about it? Well, I think there's a lot of things that could be done about it. The, we have agencies in our government that ought to be taking a much closer look than they have been taking, and I think they need instruction from Congress to do that. The main agency is the Federal Trade Commission. So one thing the Federal Trade Commission could do, for example, is something it does routinely in tobacco, and that is ask the companies where they are spending their, their marketing dollars and who, they're, who they are targeting with those dollars. And then the public and public health Uh, folks would have a much better basis on which to make determinations about what's acceptable in our society and what's not acceptable in our society. But that's, that's the first step. We need the knowledge. Another thing that concerns me is how the companies construct their marketing. Uh, Kelly, if you want to do a study here at Yale, you have to go through quite a rigorous process to get approval from your institutional review board to make sure that you're not harming your subjects in any way. And I'd like to see marketers under those same kinds of IRB restrictions where somebody else looks at the research protocols and decides whether it's appropriate to involve children in this kind of research. That would be something that we could do. And I I think those two things, I think empowering the FTC and demanding that it collect this data so that we know what's going on would be a great start. And then finally, I think that as more and more people are learning about this, they're getting concerned about privacy. And I think you're going to hear calls for privacy protection in in the mobile 
world, in the digital world. And as we examine that and debate what's appropriate to do, we should be considering children and adolescents in particular, because these engaging techniques are coming at a time when they are forming their identity. And I think it's worth us taking a very close look to make sure they're protected. Well, Lori, thank you so much. This this work is clearly at the, the, the forefront of what needs to be done, and it's the next generation of marketing. And you can just see how, if this is going to become more powerful than the traditional television, that the industry will continue the trend, spend less on television, more on this. So we darn well need to know how much of it there is, what impact it's having, and then to the extent it is having a negative impact, and you can only guess that it is. The, that things need to be done. So I appreciate your work on this, and I appreciate you joining us today. Great. Thanks for having me, Kelly. Our guest today was Lori Dorfman, director of the Berkeley Media Studies Group, a project of the Public Health Institute in Berkeley, California. And uh, I urge you to go to the Berkeley Media Studies uh, Group website for the number of reports they've done, and have, they have a lot of excellent information available there. And also to the Rudd Center website at www.yalerudcenter.org for access to a variety of resources, including a free email newsletter that comes out monthly and a list of the other excellent podcasts that we've recorded. Thank you.